You have two minutes to get your seat. One of these weeks, there's going to be candy bars in the front rows right here. So we can get together. In the meantime, we will continue to be scattered all over the known world. Okay. Good morning, good morning. We were checking people coming in earlier this morning to see if everybody had happy hearts because you got an extra hour to sleep. Yeah. Right? Oh. <laughs> so, take your Bible and turn to that passage, Philippians 2. I was almost tempted to give Marshall money two weeks ago when he said, I'm going to be in this text in Philippians. Notice I said almost. Because what a great, glorious passage of the Bible for me to be able to come back and dig in and look at again in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. One of the most majestic and glorious sections of the New Testament, and when you read the commentaries, they might even suggest of, certainly of Philippians, but even of the rest of the, of the, uh, of the New Testament. So it's really, at, uh, it's, it's really the mountaintop of the book of Philippians. Everything gets up to this and comes down from, from Philippians 2, 5 through verse 11. So... Let me lead us in prayer and ask God to honor our time together. And grateful you're here this morning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the wonder of your redemptive plan and the glory of what you have accomplished in the Son. And we ask as we see this model and motivation for living the Christian life, that you will bring through your word, by your spirit, bring it to bear upon our lives as we profess the one to whom this text is about. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the eagerness that we have in our hearts to worship together as your church and to hear from you through your word and, and be encouraged and encourage one another in this great walk of faith that we have in this this a process that you are bringing about by the Word and the Spirit in our lives and making us more like Jesus Christ. Oh, how we thank you and give you praise for that. And so with eagerness of heart now, we come to this text and we ask your blessing upon your Word for your glory first and then the good of your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. And everybody said... If you have a Bible study and you read below Philippians 2, 5, and 11, I just want to tell you all those notes are wrong. I just want to see who's awake, okay? You will probably read in those notes, if you glance at them, that this section was also sang as a hymn in the early church. And that was so because for more than one reason, I'm sure, but because it's so so exalts the person of Jesus Christ and also proclaims the gospel at the, same, at the same time. But one more time, and I want you to notice in the uh, title for the text this morning, this section serves us not only as a model for what 
Marshall took us to in verses 1 through 4 in Philippians chapter 2 last week. The model of this call to humility, but it also serves us as the utmost priority motivation for it when we look at Christ and we never want to lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? In anything that's going on in our lives, we don't want to lose sight of Christ and what he's done to redeem sinners um, like us. So the text has been referred to as the very essence of the Christian faith modeled in Christ and given as an illustration, an example for, for us. And I want to start with a particular quote concerning that. And I want to move my notes around here by James Boyce. What a great, uh, what a great expositor and theologian of the Scriptures was Boyce. And I want you to listen as we dive into this particular text what he says about it. These verses bring us near to the bedrock of the early Christian faith and preaching. They contain most of the distinctive articles of the Christian creed. They teach the divinity of Christ, his preexistence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation and true humanity, his voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of, the, of his ultimate triumph over evil, and the preeminence of his reign, all in this text, which I would like to have six weeks on rather than one shot at it, but we're going to see it today in one look at verses 5 through 11. Now the focus of 5 through 11 being that particular model and motivation for us is given to us in the context of particularly of verse 3 and 4. So let's go back at verse 3 and 4 and glance at it again. In fact, it would probably be most appropriate to go to verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intend on one purpose. Now, here's how. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Key, humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then right transitioning. Now, verse 5. So have this attitude that he has just presented to us in those two previous verses. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to convey to us what that looked like in those following verses. So in verse 3, back to verse 3, as Marshall brought home to us, we are given the new way of thinking and the new way of living. And it's a participial form in verse 3. So this is continue on in our lives until God takes us home. And this noun form of this word, humility, that's given to us, this humility of mind, interesting for us, if you begin to look at it in the original text, this particular word that the apostle uses in the Scriptures is a word that was not found in extra-biblical literature until about the 2nd or 3rd century. 
And the reason is it was not a thing that was highly viewed to the very opposite. It was a demonstration of weakness in the Roman world and in the Greek culture, kind of like it is today. Are you with me? I mean, if you're going to catch some football today, uh, some guy scores, you know, he runs into the end zone, and they stick the mic in front of his mouth if they're able to, and he says, I just want to thank God for all those men who just blocked for me and did all this work so that I would have the opportunity to humbly be able to score this touchdown. That's what you see when you watch a game, amen? Yeah. What do you see? You see the, the, the contrast of this mindset that Paul is calling every Christian to exhibit in our lives. And it, it, is, it is formed, it is developed through Jesus Christ in our response to others and putting them first. So, just to point out to us, this transition then he gives us, develop that in verse 5. And in the Bible, this virtue of life that is commended and essential to the Christian life is not just mentioned or demonstrated for us in the, in the New Testament. It's throughout the Scriptures. But it's modeled in Christ, right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and what next? And what of heart? And humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He's going to take us right to the example of Christ but in specific terms. But notice how this is in the Old Testament likewise. And this is not new to you, but I just want to say this is a major theme of the Christian life. It's not. Humility is not a virtue, another virtue added to all the other ones we're seeking to exhibit. What I'm pointing out to you from the text here today and showing you in the model of Christ is that this is absolutely essential in your pursuit of living the Christian life. I've, I've known 16, 18 for years, but I've, I've forgotten to memorize verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, haughty spirit before a fall. Probably heard that. But it's better to be humble, it says in verse 19, with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. In Isaiah 66, 2. Remember this passage? For my hand made all these things, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. How many might remember that? Wow, what a passage worth memorizing. Micah 6, 8. Another one of these great passages. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk how with your God? Everybody say it. Walk humbly. Peter, you know this passage. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the, but he gives grace to the, our greatest vice in the Christian life is our pride. And we all have it. It's just a matter of how much in any given situation it exhibits in our lives. It is at the very root of all of our sin, pride. The supreme vice of the Christian is pride, the ultimate pursuing virtue of the Christian is humility, which is pointing to the glory of God, putting God first and others first in the, in the Christian life. And I want to just kind of boil it down in terms of, as we move into verse 5 and following, I need to get going, but I, I want to just really boil this down to the fact 
that it, the moment that humility is not pursued, pride is ruling in our lives. The mindset, regard one another as more important, this mindset of humility. Have this attitude, embrace this attitude in verse 5. And the way that this fleshes out in your life as well as any other is this. Jesus said, we saw this last week, the greatest among you shall be your what? So be your servant. Christ, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 13, he's kneeling down at the feet of those apostles and washing their dirty feet as the, as the lowest servant would do in the context of a, of a household and demonstrating to them, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So how is this reflected in the Christian life? It's reflected as pursuing the servant life that places others first and God as first in our lives. We demonstrate God being first by our serving and giving um, service even to others. And would it surprise you that over the years in doing premarital counseling, one of the first verses that I have people memorize is Philippians chapter, three, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Would that surprise you? Wouldn't surprise you, would it? Because the flip side of serving is selfishness, right? What kills a marriage more than being selfish? And that's one of the main ways that pride exhibits in our marriages. You all look like none of you want to nod right now, okay? But it's true, isn't it? Now, the flip side of that is to live the servant life and put my wife before myself as a servant. That would be a way that I would love her as Christ loved the church. So the embracing of humility is living, following the example, embracing the servant life. So when he's talking about have this attitude, we think right so that we might live right and do right. Right thinking leads to right behavior. But we don't have this mindset automatically. We have to gain this from the Scriptures and never lose sight of the model of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think I have an outline of those next verses that we need to get to right now, of verses 5 and 6, excuse me, verses 5 through 11. First, I want you to see the preeminence of Christ as deity in verses 5 and 6. Then in verses 7 and 8, we have his condescension, specifically in the incarnation that leads to the cross. And then third, in verses 9 and 11, we have Christ's exaltation to universal authority as to the, if I can use, the reward or honor for his humility. So we're up here with who he has always been in deity. We're down here, way down here with his, with his humility. And then we're way up above with his coronation and his exaltation and his honor for what he has done for sinners like us in the cross. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here is his preeminence as deity. Notice verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, the word existed there for us is what we call 
In the text, a present active participle, and it's conveying to us the fact that he is God, and he always has been God, and he always will be God. We love Hebrews, I think it's 13.8, isn't it? We say Jesus is the same yesterday, what? Today, and forever. That's what he's emphasizing. Whoop, did I lose it? In the servant's mindset, I want to say right now this fell off because Deborah put this on me, okay? There we go. Who, although existed in the form, this idea of existing in the form, the reality of ongoing, continued position, his eternality is being mentioned in here. When he says, of the form of God, we tend to think this word from morphe or Form is the eye. We, we tend to think in terms of visually. When something is in the form of something else, we think about what it looks like. Or we look at the clouds maybe today and we say that the form in that cloud looks like a face or something. But the idea of this word is not visual, it's speaking with reference to Christ's essence or his position in eternity. Now, just to emphasize again with reference to his preeminence. He existed in the form that is in the essence of God and always has. Colossians 1.15. We could go to so many verses, couldn't we? But few verses say it better than Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or we could take our Bibles right now, and let's do that, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. In the early verses, of Hebrews, if we could, please. Hebrews chapter 1. He existed in the form of God. You know that the argument in the book of Hebrews is that Christ is exalted above all and better than all, right? And everything, better than the law, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than all. He is superior to all. And in verse 1 of chapter 1, he starts with this, God, as he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, who appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. That's he made through Christ. And he, Christ, is the radiance of his, that is God's glory, and the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent, and I want you to remember that, a more excellent name. Why? Because if before we get back to the section of Philippians, if you remember the section, Jesus is given a what above all other what? A name. And it's relating to his position, to his rank, not some other title, but a name. And here in Hebrews, it speaks of the fact a more excellent name based upon the reality of what He has done as the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we all believe that. We know that. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality 
with God, we're back in verse 6, with God, a thing to be grasped or held on to. This is a word that is expressing just an absolute divine truth, okay? He did not regard this eternal existence in divine glory that he enjoyed from all eternity. John 17, 17, when he prayed, I'm not sure it's 17, but it's John chapter 17. He said, Father, glorify me now with the glory that I, what, had with you. He's praying that in in human flesh, never ceased to be God. But the reality of this eternal position and prerogative that he enjoyed as God. And he's telling us, Paul is telling us, he did not regard or consider that position and priority and prerogative as God a thing to be grasped, says the New American Standard. Word comes from an initial word that has the idea of a thing plundered or seized as in the spoils of war. Now just stay with me because that doesn't really click concerning that word unless you understand the idea of how it was used. To take something by force or to drag it away. It has the idea of taking, taking. The Dictionary of New Testament Theology gives us this particular definition of it with reference to hanging on or dragging away or taking something. The idea to be held onto. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God. NIV says, to be forcefully held onto. Who has the NIV? Is that what it says? To be forcefully held onto. Or another paraphrase of it says, to be used to his own advantage. Phillips paraphrase, remember it's a paraphrase, but he always is good oftentimes about saying things in his own words. He expresses it, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. So the idea here is though he existed in all of that privilege and all that priority, he did not think, deem that position as something to be held, to be held on to. Let me give you a very weak illustration, but of a profound truth that's being expressed here with reference to then how he did this in the incarnation. When our kids were little, we tried to teach them to be a blessing to others. So we would say to them, when people would come to our house and if they would have other children your age, when they were little and they had all that pile of toys from the grandparents, amen, that's part of our job to just submerse them in things, right? Okay? Or they'd come to our house and they'd have kids, you know, that would come maybe their own age and we would say to them, you have to share. You have to share. So if they come and they want to use, you can't say that word that starts with M. You can't say what? You can't say mine. They are yours. They are yours. And if those other kids break them, we'll send their parents a bill for that, okay? Just kidding. But they are yours, but you are to be a servant. You can't say mine with them. Jesus didn't say, if I can say it just in human terms, he did not say, this is mine. 
he said, not my will, but what? Ah, in obedience to the Father, but your will be done. And Paul wants you to look at that attitude that was expressed by Christ. Not mine, but yours. Your will be done in humble obedience to the will of the Father. That's enough for us right there, isn't it? Amen? But read on. Here's how he continued to express that model and that attitude of life for us. But he emptied himself. And this is where from the word kanoo we get this, what is called the kenosis. You got footnote in your Bible that'll talk about the fact that this is what commonly is called the kenosis to which he, Jesus, experienced. Now, understand this. What verse 7 is telling us is the mechanics or the how-to of he expressed this attitude of not grasping what was his or hanging on to it in a selfish manner, if I can paraphrase it that way. And all of this, I think maybe I have this on the overhead. Oh, I don't want that yet. All of this is this wonderful verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the whole thing of what's going on here. He emptied himself, but we have to be careful of that because when we think about emptying that water in that jar, something is being poured out, and then it's less than what it was originally. And that's very dangerous because we've just taken time previously to say Jesus is God, and he always has been, always will be deity. So you have to ask yourself the question then, okay, what's the idea of this kenosis? And in short, I like Leitner's particular. I'm sorry, I don't think I have this one on the overhead. But he says, quote, the idea in short is this, that he, Christ, divested himself of self-interest, but not of his deity. And it's all back to that idea again, isn't it? And there are two aspects of this. But the primary way in which he is modeling for us this humility, and I'm going to go back now to MacArthur's statement concerning the incarnation. When we say that word incarnation, you all know what we're saying. That's the word for becoming flesh. Becoming flesh. And MacArthur makes this statement about the incarnation that's pretty powerful. He says, the incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity. What? Now think about that. It is the central miracle of Christianity, the most grand and wonderful of all things that God has ever done. It has been called a Christological gem, a theological diamond that perhaps sparkles beyond, uh, sparkles brighter than any other in Scripture In simple, brief, yet extraordinary, profound way, it describes the condensation, condensation, (laughs) the condescension of Christ, where am I, (laughs) of the second person of the Trinity to be born, to live, and to die in human form to provide redemption for fallen mankind. All of that in the wonder of this incarnation of him becoming flesh. 
Now, there's a twofold aspect of this, and you can catch it as I point it out to, you, to us. First of all, this self-emptying or this, uh, this uh, kenosis idea is what he surrendered or chosen, chosen not to assert as deity. And we read the Gospels and we can see that. He never ceased being what he is and will ever be as God, but the Gospels prove to us he did lay aside every advantage and privilege of deity. When he was hungry, he just didn't make food for himself, did he? But he could have, an example after example. is best described then as the independent exercise of his deity, laying that aside, the voluntary non-use of his prerogatives as God. There were things he chose not to know. There were things he did not as God, but with reference to his humanity. And I think this verse expresses this as much as anywhere else. In Hebrews 5.8, it says, although he was a son, better have a capital S on that, right? He learned what? Obedience from the things which he suffered. Wait a minute, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know all things? Doesn't he have all power and so forth? But in his humanity, there were things to which he learned through that humanity. It's amazing, isn't it? Always was God, but not always man took upon that humanity. Now, I bounced ahead a little bit to express from the guy on the right, one of my profs, Dick Mayhew, and I think he gave me an A, so I really like him, okay? With that theology that many of you have, uh, systematic theology of one volume there. He says, in his incarnation, Christ voluntarily yielded, yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of his heavenly Father. But so one way was in which he limited himself with reference to these divine powers and attributes. But there is a second way in which that was true, and that has to do with the fact that he simply took upon human flesh, what he took upon himself in being man. He was tempted he suffered. He was hungry. He experienced pain. He experienced rejection from the cradle, from his birth, all the way to the cross. Came into this world, laid in a, where was he put when he came to his birth? Where does the gospel tell us? Laid in what? Manger. You know what a manger is? It's a feed trough. Wrapped in what as an infant? His swaddling clothes, not, not a, a golden woven robe for a blanket for the Son of God? No. From the very moment of his coming into this world to the ultimate expression of human life in his death, but beyond just physical death, end of verse 8 I'm going to jump ahead what's the very end of verse 8 tell us not only the point of death but even death on a cross 
And we can talk about how the Romans said, had a saying that he who dies on a cross dies a, a thousand deaths, but it's more than that. It's what he endured of the wrath of God on behalf of man's sin. So from the point of his coming until the, the cross itself, here's this humility. Or here's a good way of saying this. In taking upon flesh, his was a way of emptying himself, but by addition, by becoming man. And so in the former verse, in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on this form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and his life exhibited servanthood. But verse 8 tells us the extent of this. But being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So get this, note with me. In the former of verse 7, he stooped from being God to becoming man. In the latter, he humbled himself by stooping from going to humanity to the death on a cross. And Hebrews tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, and let's turn to this one as well. In all of this, we have not only supreme humility as our model, but we have a faithful high priest who knows everything you will ever experience except, well, let's look at 2, 17 and 18. Would you calm down? You're such a noisy crowd this morning. Calm down a little bit. 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, Looking for some of the teens here this morning. They're in another class. Okay, here's we're looking for purpose clauses, teaching them about interpreting the Bible. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. There's his ultimate purpose in coming. But for since he himself was tempted in all that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And we move over to chapter 4. Yeah, verse 14. Let's go there. Chapter 4, verse 14. Was tempted in all things that we are, and yet without sin, we're told in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Everybody say it. Yet without what? Without sin. So, therefore again, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As a believer, don't you ever dare, don't, don't you dare ever say, nobody knows how I feel. Anybody here ever struggle 
with just temptation in the Christian life to make right choices pleasing to God, and you know the force of temptation away from the will of God in your life. Anybody ever struggle with that? Come on. He was tempted in all points, yet we are. And look at the temptation account. That was not for his sake. That was for our sake. That he came and he showed us in the temptation account the power of walking in the Spirit. He was guided by the Spirit, and he used the Word of God in response to every form of hit from the God of this world to bring him down. And he kept saying, it is written, it is written. And remember at the end of it, at the end of the temptation account, for instance, in the book of Matthew, let's turn there, Matthew 4, Matthew 4. What was it like for him? You see, that was easy. That whole temptation thing was easy because he's God and it didn't hurt him at all and he could just have some kind of a divine power that made him exempt from the power of this. Matthew chapter 4, I believe that's the Matthew account. Oh, yes. Let's just look at the end of it, okay? Let's just look at verse... Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, Matthew 4, 8. Are you with me? And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he, the devil, said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, that's the key thing throughout this one, his temptation, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But what I was driving at is verse 11. Then the devil left him, Mark says, for a short time. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Why was that necessary? Because the temptation, remember there was 40 days that preceded this. I get that. But the power of the temptation upon his life in human flesh was so very, very strong, and it is in us. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? But all of that he experienced. And so as our high priest, as Hebrews is telling us, that when you struggle in any aspect of the Christian life, experiencing pain, living with pain, or trials that are going on in your life, or grief, or hardship. Do you know anything about grieving over certain things? He knows. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He knows. So when I pray to the Father, through the Son, by his high priestly ministry, I pray to one who knows exactly how I'm feeling right now and how I'm struggling and how I'm hurting. And then Philippians 2 says, Kevin, look to the cross. Look to Christ. Never lose sight of him. He not only knows, but he experienced a depth beyond you'll ever know. And he did that for a sinner like you. Oh my. Oh my. So here's his, back to Philippians, there is his descent Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, not by becoming less than God, but taking on human form. Always has been God, but has not always been man. 
And with the communion, think about it with me. This is mystery within the communion of the Trinity. Father said, I want you to go. And the son said, I'll go. I'll go. Knowing fully what he was going to face. Knowing fully what the cross was going to be like. How do we know that? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this what? Let this cup. He knew exactly what was coming to him. But he did that as our supreme example of humbling ourselves. Mm, what, what a Savior that we have. Now, what's the result of this? Sure ought to be worship with us. Amen? But then we have this exaltation to honor for the humiliation in the incarnation. Verse 9. For this reason, for this reason, verses 6, 7, and 8, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I think Paul's thinking here about the fallen angels and those who reject Christ and and, uh, the demons. All, all are going to confess that every tongue, verse 11, will confess what? That Jesus Christ is kurios, that he is supreme above all. Now, you say, well, he is already God. Yes, but in what he has done, he is being honored supremely. And I think the best word for this, this universal authority to which he is honored here, is best described in what I would call, and others, I I don't think about anything with myself, as his coronation, as his coronation for what he has done in majesty and glory and being seated at the right hand of the Father as the one who laid down his life uh, for us. So in honor, in, the, in honor of what he had done, there is this name above all names. And though the, through the resurrection, that's verse 21, I pulled out the middle of Peter, but I just want you to see that in the New Testament. Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There he is in his his exalted majesty, now in terms of from the ascension, then to ultimately to his coronation as what we're going to call, what we're going to see in the book of of Revelation, what he's called. Hebrews, again, just the end of verse 4, we read that already about better than the angels and inherit a more excellent name. We read Hebrews 1 and 2, sitting at being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. R. Martin says, no clear proof could be set forth Jesus' exalted position as the Father's right hand than the use, not uses, than the use of Isaiah 45, 23. What are we talking about? Because if you look at verse 10, Paul is quoting that from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is referencing in that incredible section of Isaiah 40 and following that of the supremacy of God above all other imagined deities. And Paul pulls that out there with reference to the fact that it it proclaims his supreme greatness over all. 
And so all one day, you and I at the judgment seat of Christ, we've talked a little bit about the last few weeks, or the unsaved person at the final judgment, whether at the Bema or what we call the great white throne judgment, Christ is going to be there. And even though we love him now, and we read of him in the scriptures, and we rejoice in him as our Savior, when we see him, when we see him, we're going to be in awe. And we're going to declare with, uh, I like it all over the revelation. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the books or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Who's worthy? Then I looked, verse 11, I'm going farther in the chapter. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, another inexpressible, beyond expressible in number, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then the seven angels sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has come. I realize I'm bouncing through some of these sections but of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign. Everybody, he will reign. And this reference to Christ. Now we've come from this messianic, kingly promise that following the work of redemption, he is exalted on high to the right hand of the Father. And Revelation 19, 6 says it so well and marks him in this way when he returns. So say this one with me, would you please? 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a new name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. Sovereign of all sovereigns. The reward. Great reward for what he has done in this great act of humility all the way to the end, to the cross of Jesus Christ. So, verse 11. All to the glory of the Father. Christ's likeness is the pursuit of humility. The pursuit of humility is seen in the servant life. Christ is our example as servant. To what extent did he serve us? How could he have served us more than what he did in the cross, right? So that primary key to our walking in humility and embracing that mindset is the wonder of his example. I think the best title of any book that I have ever seen referring to God, but his work in redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the title, There is No One Like Him. And there is no one to describe even to begin when we think about what Christ was life. Now, back to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. What? I'm out of time. <laughs> I admonish, uh, uh, I didn't admonish, but I was talking with Marshall this week about running out of time. 
I said, you've got to stop running out of time. You've got to get done. Okay, I'm out of time. Marshall, rebuke me, okay? Okay, but I just want you to notice. Back in verses, verses 2, if there's any consolation of love, verse 1, fellowship of the Spirit, any affection of compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same what? This, this is what maintains the oneness and unity in our church. Everybody's pursuing this attitude of others to the glory of God. This is that oneness that he's talking about, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent, the end of verse 2, one purpose. He's already said that in chapter 1. To the degree that we're following that example and pursuing that, that mindset of life, we are pursuing unity in the church. And there is no substitute for this, beloved. There is no substitute for this attitude of life in your life as a Christian. And there's no substitute for it in the pew or in the pulpit. It is to permeate the body of Jesus Christ and be a witness to the world that those people love somebody more than they love themselves. Amen? May it be so at PBC. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible text that I feel so inadequate to really bring home the wonder of it all. But it, I pray that the Spirit of God has brought this, this Word of God to our hearts in such a way that we are humbled again, humbled again by the wonder of it all. And that where, where pride continually surfaces in our life, I, I, I'm always right or I know better or I'm, I'm thinking about myself or I'm saying mine to the things that I have that are so temporal that we would look to Christ, we would remember his example, and we would pursue it. And we would be marked as people who are serving others, serving them in the gospel, serving them in ways to demonstrate care for them, serving them in ways to have opportunity to speak of the one who served us at Calvary. And we pray this in Christ's name and for your supreme triune glory. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.